Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele. Now, on this episode, this is part two, where we're talking to my good friend Dave Lustig of Old Oak Cellars about how to make wine at home and just how easy it is, and why home brewers make better winemakers than home winemakers do. Do you own a copy of John Palmer's How to Brew? If so, you know it's one of those truly indispensable resources for brewers. Well, it's time to replace that old dog-eared copy, because our friends at Brewers Publications have just published the fourth edition of How to Brew, and it's a totally new book. The new How to Brew clocks in at 600 pages, and every chapter has been updated and expanded, and there are five totally new chapters to boot. So grab your copy at your preferred beer book vendor, or buy it from the Brewers Association store if you want to get the book and support craft breweries at the same time. More info at BrewersPublications.com. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring artisan malt house Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. So we got we got fermentations done. Now with the white wine, I assume we just start racking like it's a cider or a mead or a beer. Right. Uh, Take it off the solids. Let, yeah. let gravity do its thing and things settle out and stuff like that. So. And and we're constantly trying to make sure that every time we move the wine, we're keeping it topped up so that we're minimizing air exposure, right? Or minimizing the amount of surface area on air. Yes. Um, oxygen oxygen control is what you're doing in the age. I remember the headspace thing when I was learning both winemaking and mead making, that was that was considered tantamount to a sin if you didn't do all your topping up. Yeah, like almost like not temperature controlling your beer, not sanitizing your carboys in beer. That level of seriousness. It is pretty much that level of seriousness. And um, unfortunately, with glass carboys, you can't seal them because you get a little expansion, you start breaking and that kind of stuff. People will take a commercial bottle and use that to top their wine up. Well, and if you go into most like cideries or wine ma- uh, uh, wineries, you'll see like, carboys hanging around of various sizes <laughs> you know like one gallons two gallons three gallons five gallons that they leave around to have as top-up wine right and in order and, and fill it exactly if you've got three gallons left you don't want to put that in a five gallon carboy and hang on to it i use a lot of stainless i'll do i'll put it in stainless and argon it and you know that kind of stuff but yeah we've got white wines just moving along racking along but obviously with red wine now we have to go and press it 
which is always the fun thing. And that's the thing I think a lot of people, people think of with wine, the two things, it's either stomping feet, the grapes. Yeah, yeah, feet and tub, like I love Lucy, or, you know, trying to do this pressing thing. And usually you'll see this happen at a homebrew shop, like every fall at our shop, a basket press and people ratcheting it down. You said you have, uh, you have it set up on hydraulics right. so that you don't have to, to ratchet everything down now. Basically, you're getting the, the wine out of the grapes. Yep, separating from the scales. And you're getting that nice thick pumice. By the way, don't, uh, don't throw away that stuff because oh, you can Great actually, compost. Well, great compost. You can use it actually as a flavoring agent. I, I've, I've made uh, piments with it before. Yeah, probably pressing day is one of the more important winemaking days because I'm sitting there at the press with my finger in the juice as the pressure is going up, tasting. And you can, you can, it'll, it'll migrate. It gets clearer too as it gets farther in, that kind of stuff. But there comes a time where you say, okay, we're done. Yep. I don't know how much juice is left in here, but I'm not liking the flavors anymore. We'll stop. Well, and again, this goes back to what we were talking about. Brewers freak out about anything post-fermentation or anything post-boil. And there you are with your finger in the <laughs> finger in the, finger in the juice, right, as it goes by. But again, we're talking 12%, 15% alcohol and a pH of 3, 5, 3, 6. You mm-hmm. know, it's a little it's a little different microbiological environment than, than beer. Yeah, I mean, at that point, the only thing you really have to worry about is acetobacter. But I mean, for the most part, unless you get the acetobacter in there, you're going to end up with something that you can you can drink. Right. So red wine's off the skins. Press is done. Use the pomace. You go mix it with some sugar water and make a, I forget, what, what is that style? Second of run. Second run wine. Second run wine. But yeah, there's another term for it where it's like, oh, you use the, you wash the pomace to get a, to get another. Repassato is the Italian phrase. Yes. They actually use that as a, as a fix. So it's, a, it's an Italian technique for if you've had too much oxygen on your stuff, you throw it on this year's skins and get just a little brief fermentation to blow the VA out and that kind of stuff. So now we're into our carboys with both our whites and our reds. Everything's hunky-dory at this point in time. Nothing's changing in terms of the process. We're still watching what sulfite and acid and... Right, and, and selling and clearing and that kind of stuff too. Um, the, you know, the watchwords are like 222 or 333. You rack after two days to get the first heavy solids off the press. You rack after two weeks to get most of the solids off your rack after a couple months because you've had that more time then you're you know, theory you're, you're pretty clear mm-hmm. um yeah you're keeping your sulfites up usually just by adding a little bit every time you rack and the sulfites serve as a sanitation agent and they also serve as an antioxidant right again oxygen being the enemy oxygen being the enemy or well excess oxygen being the enemy you need you need some oxygen for the aging and People don't realize that even though a barrel is almost as thick as a two by four it does actually breathe or wick through the wood. They're, they're cut so that it goes through the grain. And depending on the outside relative humidity, you lose either alcohol or water. And uh, that's why they keep caves moist and that kind of stuff is because you lose less alcohol that way. But again, that's the old world style where the alcohol tends to be lower because the grapes are less ripe because conditions are more marginal. We Californians have all this sunshine all the time that gets in the way of that. And a lot of California wines that are coming at like 16% as opposed to, you know, your French wines, which are you know, 11, 12. Uh, one of the best things that I found, I do some home growing too, is that you want to get that sunlight on the grapes while they're green. That green is chlorophyll. So if you get, you know, you get the sunlight on early, you get things happening inside the grapes. You see, I seem to get a little bit more, more oomph in my, my wimpy grapes at home that way. We've got our wine, we're aging. Uh, you can add oak cubes and whatnot if you want. We eventually get down to the, um, for the homemaker. I mean, obviously for the professional winemaker, like I said, we're sitting amongst barrels. That's a much better alternative. And that, that begs the question. Nowadays for home for homebrewers, we're getting access to like old whiskey casts, you know, that have been used or, or that. We could use those for winemaking too. We'd pick up some different characters. But. Get some different characters, some different flavors. Um, most of the barrels here actually are what they call neutral barrel. Uh, when you get a fresh oak barrel, it's got all kinds of flavors and toast. It feels and like two and like two by four. Yeah, right. And after a couple of years, that's all come out of the wood and into the wine, and all you have is vessel for aging. 
with that slow oxygenation. So that's what that's what most of these are. I tend to buy a couple of new ones each year and put something in there. Like I mentioned, I had a flavoring wine of Petit Verdot in the cab this year. I put that in the newer barrels and then judiciously blend that in. We've had the wine settling for a while. We've put in some oak if we wanted it, not put in oak. You know, there's plenty of Chardonnays out there in the world that have no oak, for instance. It's a selling point. And that, by the way, folks, is whenever you hear a winemaker talk about, oh, this is all stainless. That's what they mean. There's no barrel time in it. Now we've got our our wine. It's going to be time to go to a bottle. Well, but you've got to get to that point right. in time, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're talking. You have hanged. I mean, you've had plenty of time for clearing and aging. At some point, what like after about a year? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I want to talk about in the difference between brewing and winemaking and stuff. When you when you when you lager or let something age or something like that, you're you know, you're in a you're in a keg. You're under CO two. You're not. You know, you're sealed up, generally speaking. In the carboy with the thermal expansion and stuff, you don't want to do that. So you've got to keep your fermentation lock on there. And, that, and those things do dry out, especially here in Southern California. So one of the things that you have to worry about, and by, by the time you've run a batch of beer, if you use a blow-off tube or a firm lock or whatever, you're, you're not going to dry out in the, in the couple weeks you're going to run a fermentation on a beer. But storing a wine for six, eight, nine, twelve months, you're going to have to keep an eye on that. So that's a, that's a different thing. Some of us also watch the weather. You can get a 12 or 15% gas exchange to a fermentation lock when a cold front moves through or a high front moves. So if you're really trying to keep it, say a white wine, where you really want to keep the oxygen out, you really have to, uh, you know, I'll go back in after a front's blown through and regas things and that kind of stuff. And uh, when you say regas, I mean, obviously you talked about here you have access to things like argon. I've got argon here. I've got CO2 that I have to use at home. Right. So yeah. as a brewer, you know, hey, go grab your CO2 tank that you use for, and then just go into the carboy. Yep. At, at a very low pressure so that you're not you know, mixing too much and that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And, and splashing wine everywhere. Yeah. What other maintenance needs to happen before we can get to the bottle? That's pretty much it. I mean, you're, you're watching for flavors changing and developing, which means you're tasting, which means you're tapping into it, and then you got to tap yeah. it back up and reveal it back up and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. If you are impatient and of strong moral stature, you can do things. I mean, you can do things like just ignore it for the year, you know? But that's that's really hard for us humans to do. So we tend to, well, I wonder how that one's tasting. Or, how are you doing? <laughs> that's right. Well, look, I just bought a 2011 Cabernet. I wonder how my 2011 Cabernet is tasting compared to this. Because this one's pretty good or this one was pretty bad. I hope mine's tasting better or whatever. So playing around. I kind of always used the supermarket as my, my bottling guide. You know, when, when the 2014 wine starts showing up in the red aisle at the supermarket, it's time to think about bottling my 2014 wine at home. Well, and, and and the one that we're having right now is a 2011. 2011, so yeah. We we got some years on this one. Yeah, and it's been in, only been in the bottle for a couple of years though. Well, yeah. If you, if you got barrels, you can just keep uh, keep it hanging out there and keep checking on them and filling them back up and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, because you you lose your 10, 15 percent a year to a barrel. That's the other thing. If you play with a small barrel at home, you're going to have to keep an eye on the headspace in it. So you'll you'll have to be more aggressive about your top up. We've had our time, our wine has cleared, our wine has aged, flavors have developed, and now... We're ready we to borrow it. Right. So now, first, to put it out there, yes, you can keg your wine. I do that at home almost all the time. I have almost none of my home wine in bottles. Yeah, I've, 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 totally, I've totally run kegs of wine at home because it's just fun. And easier. Yeah. I mean, like, oh, hey, honey, you want a glass of Chardonnay? Sure. Glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> And in theory, the lower carbon footprint, all that kind of stuff too. Yep. Yep. All that good stuff. Now, with the bottles, because of course, obviously, a lot of people are going to want to do at least their first wine in bottles because sexy factor. 
Yep. What do, what do we do here? I mean, I, I know what traditionally it's another metabisulfite wash, right? This is how most winemakers right. do it. Right. You usually give them a quick, they sell these nice little Italian. Okay. The, all the good stuff for small batch winemaking, all the fun little things come out of Italy. Yep. For the middle age, for the middle sized batch, it tends to be Germany and not much really comes out of France. So we have, all around here, our little hand corker is Italian, uh, that kind of stuff. There's the thing for sulfite rinsing your bottles. It's a little one-way valve in a spring, and you squirt it in and stuff like that. The drying trees for putting them on and all that stuff, they're all, all Italian for the most part, which is kind of cool. And, and, I mean, with the exception of the corker, I mean, it's all effectively the same equipment that gets sold to beer makers as well. So. Exactly, yep. All right. So we rinse our bottles. Rinse our bottles. And, and what, we just rack into the bottles? and um, Yeah, there's uh, some people just, you know, take the racking hose and their thumb over the end, as silly as that sounds. Uh, I like to use the little fillers that, you know, with the little push string on the bottom and let them out and fill from the bottom that way. Some people will go to the extreme of having some dry ice around. You put a chip of dry ice in the bottle before you fill it so that you, as you fill it up, you're pushing all the oxygen out, leaving a little bit of CO2 behind. The commercial bottling lines do that with liquid nitrogen action. Last top up before the cork goes in, kind of a thing. But yeah, CO two chips work fine for that too. And then the corks themselves. I mean, I know the old fashioned corks you had to get wet with a metabisulfite solution, and then you could pass them in through a floor corker or even a hand corker. But in order to use a hand corker, corks have to be soft. Softer, yes. And um, and what I found when you do that, if you have soaked the corks, you end up with a fair amount of metabisulfite in that cork. So I always end up squeezing them twice. I squeeze them in the in the floor corker to wring them out and then I'll squeeze them a second time and put them in a bottle, which makes a lot more work. Other options for corks, like, I mean, obviously they're hammering corks, but those are plastic and are their thing. And then you have, you know, the ones that have been SO2 gassed. Those, those are nice, but, but they tend to come in big quantities and most home winemakers aren't doing the small quantities. So, you know, again, um, what I have done with the, you, you buy the big bag, but I'll use my, my same old vacuum sealer I use on my hops. You know, and I don't have to. Re- I don't have to put them in the freezer like I do with the hops. But you can, you know, you can yeah, give them fresh. Well, all right. So now we get the we get the the wine into the bottle, and obviously you can you can put it into other bottles. You could put it into a beer bottle if you wanted to with a with a crown cap on it. But just don't lay it down so the wine's touching the cap. And you know, I mean, hell, if you wanted to, you could be very Basque like and just take it straight out of the fermenter and put it into pitchers to have at the at the dinner table. Yeah, or again, you can keg it. Um, if you, if you like the crown cap technology, champagne bottles work really well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, get the American ones, otherwise you've got to use the you know the European the, size. European size, yeah, with your cork with your capper. Uh, I've done that too, you know. But you know, in the beer world, we tend to think of the beer as being pretty much done by the time we're in the fermenter, right? Maybe we do some dry hops, maybe we do some oak, or add some other flavors to it. But for the most part, beer is done by the time we get it into the fermenter, and then or out, we, out of the fermenter. Yeah, and then we rack it out of the fermenter into our packaging. Done. Right. Nothing else that we're doing to it, but but that's not the case in the wine world, right? Because I mean, that's the that's one of the the, the big differences in the wine world and cider making and mead making. You're not done until the point in time when it's actually going into the package, because there's adjustments that you can make. Right, you can tweak if necessary, and that kind. Of, and you and you're watching when you go into the bottle to make sure that you have enough sulfite levels to be mm-hmm. met- metabolically stable and that kind of stuff. And that that is pH dependent and different for reds and whites and that kind of stuff. So because reds have some, for lack of a better phrase, protection in them from the from the coloring and the anthocyanins that give you the coloring and that kind of stuff, whereas the whites don't. So the whites tend to be in need of more sulfite, but they tend to be at a lower 
pH, so the sulfite is more active at a lower right. concentration. Yeah, yeah there's more so, free, uh, more more free SO two in the wine at a lower yeah, pH. Lower pH, yeah. Um, but then if if we're talking acid and tannin, right? Because those are kind mm-hmm. of like two of the other main flavor spectrums here, right? Yeah. How how do you determine like when you need acid? How do you determine when you need tannin? How you go about adjusting those? The the best time to make that decision is of course when you get the grapes, and so you've got it all all together from the beginning. But you can adjust later if necessary. Uh, pH. We we, we skipped uh, malolactic fermentation, which is a common step in winemaking. It's a it's a bacterial fermentation to remove the malic acid. Malic acid turns out to be a very Common food for many many bugs, including yogurt. You know, it's about like saying you don't necessarily want, necessarily want yogurt flavors in your red wine. Yep. So, uh, and it's, a, it's so malic acid reads very sharp on the palate. And- yeah, yeah, as we, as we know from our cider making, all that kind of fun stuff too. So, um, so you, you can control that anywhere along the line. Um, if you're making an acid adjustment close to bottling, sometimes you'll use citric instead of tartaric because it just expresses itself quicker. Okay, tartaric is a I think it only comes from grapes. Yep. I think uh, well, I, I, don't I don't know if it's know. only, but it's the primary source. Yeah, and it's and it's a primary acid in in grapes. But there is some citric in there. There's some malic in there too. Uh, the later, oh, this hang time thing for when you pick your grapes. The later you go, the less of those other acids you have in there as well. Sometimes a Southern California grape will not actually appear to go through malolactic fermentation even when you add the bacteria, because most of it was respired before the grapes were, were harvested. You can. Again, most these are mostly done by flavor and taste. They're not really done prescriptively. Um, there is a point in the pH scale where you start getting too too soft. It was a phrase the winemakers use. The pH is getting up there a little bit too high, and you can actually lose the ability for the metabisulfite to be a protection. Um, generally speaking, three eight or three nine. Once you get into that pH range, you can't really protect your wine with that so you've got to do something else which usually means get it in the bottle quickly and, and drink it quickly. seal it yeah. yeah well and so yeah that's part of the whole you know wine is acidic to be as as part of its protection and i mean when you hear people you always hear people talk about how tight a wine is or how bright a wine is and a lot of times those terms play into the acid level that's in the wine yeah so you know you'll you'll hear a lot of like California winemakers talk about, oh, you know, like making wine really tight so it, it pops with a bright fruit color because it's it's so lively. And that helps with the expressions of the fruity, that new world, old world style we're talking about. I just realized I'm sitting there, I'm listening to you, I'm nodding my head and that doesn't work on radio. So I'm going to have to, <laughs> I'm gonna have to, have to start grunting more or something like that as we go. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So, but yeah, no, acid is, is, is key. Um, I try to get my things really close at harvest. Okay. And again... You're gonna. It's gonna change in fermentation. It's gonna change in malolactic fermentation, and it's not always predictable. And the lab results may give you a pH, or they may give you a total acidity, but they don't necessarily tell you how that's gonna tweak. So, you, to some degree, it's guessing. But there are things that you can do, like guess optimistically or guess pessimistically, and that kind of stuff. I tend to start out by putting in maybe more acid than I need, um, because it. It's going to have those protective benefits all the way along in the life. And then once in a while, I've had something that was a little bit too sharp coming into modeling, and you can you can actually you know tums it. It's not it's, they call it potassium carbonate instead of tums, but it's essentially the same thing. 
and he can he's my, fine with and that. my wine needs an antacid. Yeah, well, and, and actually, some of the colder climate stuff comes in that way. I had a wine I brought back from Hungary when I took a cruise a couple of years ago, and it was just um, it was just it was lemonade. It was just too tart to drink, practically. You know, mm. so a little a little glass adjustment too. Your wine is not done until it's in your mouth. All right, so. Before uh, before we you know we walk away from the whole winemaking process, what do you think brewers can take away from how vintning works? And like what what skills come from the vintning world that you think brewers should really play with in their side? I think it probably goes more the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think there there do you think brewers have an advantage moving into the wine world? I've seen that you know in the amateurs here very very many times over the years. Uh, they come in they're clean, you know, um, you can get away with reusing that carboy for another batch of wine without having made it sparkle and shine, you know, and, and not damage the product, so to speak. Um, uh, if it's, if it's grown and fuzzy, that's another story, but you know, but it's not, not as clean and crisp as things get. Um, I've used more and more stainless over the years at home and gone away from glass. Again, I think I picked that up from the, from the brewing side of things. We talked about kegging wine at home and that kind of stuff instead of bottling. Um, their uh, yeasts are okay. Manufacturers of yeast tell you all kinds of wonderful things about it, but you know you know that both from the beer side and the wine side. So playing with yeasts and splitting batches and that kind of stuff is done more now in the wine business than it used to be. And I think that's again that has come over from some of the uh, the brewing technology and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, you can't really you know I wouldn't want to try that beer that I stirred by hand, you know, I'm not yeah. sure that, you know, no, it's good. I think, I think the big thing is that brewers are more fastidious because it's been drummed into our heads to be so. Um, and it affects the product. Yeah. You can be sloppier, which is maybe not a good thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, on, on the beer side. Yeah, the side. Your sloppiness is going to apply all over the place, not just to your clean, but also to your oxygen pickup to your. Right. Uh, right. So now I think, I, I do think one place where, brewers can definitely learn from vintners is when brewers start doing things with like wild ales and sour ales because suddenly those things particularly if you're getting to like the lambic type world those things start to read more like wine in terms of you know needing care and attention to barrels or to long-term storage and aging and how the, how the flavors are developing as they go and that kind of stuff. And how you blend, right? I mean, we, we didn't even touch on blending because most home winemakers aren't really going to be in a position to blend a lot until you get super serious about it. You know, if you're going off and buying your kit, you're buying a kit. You're not, buying multiple kits and then going well some of us can some of us will buy multiple kits or whatever but yeah but but it really seems like blending doesn't really start to happen until like you know suddenly half your garage is consumed with you know vessels of wine but you know blending is a vintner's art that is coming into the brewing world i I think the first time that i remember hearing about was when firestone walker started to release their anniversary series and yeah barrel blended and i mean they invite Paso Robles winemakers to come in to do the blend. Yeah. It's not beer people doing the blend. It's winemakers. Right. It's a, yeah, it's a, I try to do a lot of judging both on the wine and the beer side, because you really have to know your palate and work with your palate, that kind of stuff. And so, um, but beer judges are good too. I mean, you, if you, you, you learn to do and maybe, yeah. And maybe one thing that goes, goes from the wine world into the beer world is, uh, wine, is not style driven 
It's, it's more grape driven. And I think beer is slowly drifting that way. Mostly because with 147 styles now, there's too many to, to choose from, right? Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm jokingly there's a large number, yeah. I, no, and I think it's more than 140. Oh, okay. I, I think I, there's what 85 in the BJCP diet or something like that now. So, so yeah. So you can drive it for the product you're looking for. I mean, I've had Zinfandels that were almost a rosé, and I had Zinfandels that were almost a port, and they all say Zinfandel on the bottle. And they all sell in the wine aisle and that kind of stuff. So you've got an, an identity there, the, the, in this case, Zinfandel, just like you might have lager or ale or dark or but Belgian or farmhouse. Take your, your broader styles and you push them or live with them, get comfortable with them. You know, I, I told myself I was not going to get as geeky about the brewing as it was about the winemaking. I just want to be able to make myself a couple of decent batches of beer a couple of times a year. It didn't work. But, you know, I, I tried, and I still try to keep that as a, as a mantra. It's a, it's a good mantra. Real quick, just to recap, since, I mean, uh, like we said, this will come out in July. Grapes Grape, are coming. Grapes are coming. If you are interested in, in tackling a batch of wine, you really should. I mean, if you're a brewer, winemaking, I mean, even though we talked about there's a bunch of subtle details and some things that are different, I mean, winemaking is one of those things that, as a brewer, seems to be super quick in terms of its actual time load on you. And at the end of the day, you can end up with, you know, just like everybody likes to talk about, oh, you know, I make my, you know, five gallons of this Belgian ale that would cost me $900 in the store. I can make for 50 bucks. It's the exact same sort of thing with wine. I mean, you can make, you know, a bunch of wine that would cost you a bunch more for a bunch less. And you already have most the of the gear, gear you need. Exactly. Yeah. And you already have a lot of the skills. Now you just have to learn a couple more. And guess what? They're, they're good for you to learn those things. Yeah, and you can improvise. You can use a mesh bag instead of a press, and just you know hang the thing up and squish on it and stuff. You don't get you don't get the yield, yeah, there you go. but you don't have to spend a couple hundred bucks on a press. Well, if you're a brew in the bag brewer, exactly. you already have the right sort of already bag. Already have for that. the bag exactly. Just squeeze yeah. the hell out of the bag. Go and take a look at your local homebrew shop. See if they're getting a grape harvest. Yeah, you know, particularly that's going to be more common here, I think, on the west coast. But uh, if they don't have a grape harvest coming in, we had uh, your suggestion of Bream with their pails. pails and things like that. You've got the juice kits that are out there. I mean, really, actually, you know what? Go to your local homebrew shop and pick up one of the wine kits because, one, you'll make your local homebrew shop owner happy. Right. Because, hey, that's some extra money in their pocket. But you really can just go and make a wine with almost no effort. <laughs> yeah. You know, mix it together and, you know, put in the yeast in the one afternoon and, you know, rack and, and the kits don't need the, the press and that kind of stuff too. And you can get, you can get your experience. You can go put your wine into a keg and then you can go make your people go, what do you mean you got wine on tap? It's perfect. Go do it. What are you waiting for? Go to your shop now. Yep, have some fun. <laughs> um, and cost wise, it does, it does work out. I mean, you know, um, Expensive grapes are going to be buck and a half, two bucks a pound. That hundred pounds is going to cost you two hundred dollars. It's going to get you two cases of wine. Yeah, you know? and I mean, yeah, and yeah. if you're two, talking even yeah. like cheap wine, like or cheap good wine at ten dollars a bottle, say, right? I mean, you're, you're still coming out slightly ahead, and you've got that whole, uh, you know, you know, pat your chest and say, I did this. Yeah, exactly. Going there too. Yeah. yeah, you get the, you you, yeah. you get to have puffed up pride. Yeah, well, and it's always fun to bring that bottle to the party that's got, you know, the, the Sharpie on the outside instead of the fancy label or something like that, though, with uh, with Grog Tag these days. The labels have gone up on my homebrew. Dave, thank you so much for sitting down. Oh, Drew, had a blast. Yeah. Uh, always good to see you. Yeah, and, and by the way, I know we, we didn't really talk about it, but the, uh, the cab that you, uh, that you poured us that we've been drinking here while we've been talking, I mean, absolutely lovely. 
people if people can come and find your wines here in Pasadena, they can go to Old Oak Cellars. Uh, like we said, you're open a couple couple days every month. Right. Uh, you have wine clubs. You have the ability to go and get some wine. So yeah, please, we do, we do music here in the winery a couple times a month. That kind of stuff too. Yeah, we're sitting so. right around the corner from the stage. So, yep. well, actually, I mean, we're sitting right, right around the corner from everything in the winery. But it, it's a big industrial space. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's straightforward. But yeah, by all means, if you're in the Pasadena area, come check out uh, Old Oak Cellars here in Pasadena. Say hi to Dave. Dave's going to be the man behind the table with the bottles of wine. We hope that you're just going to take away from this the idea that wine is good. You can make wine. Take the leap. You know, I, I felt the leap was a little bigger going into brewing from winemaking. I had to, I had to deal with kegs and uh, <laughs> boiling pots and that kind of stuff, HLTs and things like that. But yeah, Brewing is more mechanicalistically difficult. But Which is why I kind of dispute the historical concept that the brewing came before the winemaking. You know? uh, well, <laughs> if you look at the history, you look at the stuff that's being pulled up by Patrick McGovern. Part of the reason I know tartaric acid is grapes is because that's part of how he identifies that, oh, that had grapes in it. But when you go and you look at all of his stuff, like all the early stuff that they find in China and Mesopotamia and, and all this, it's all blend. These pots have residues from grapes and honey and barley in them. Yeah. It's like they didn't give a royal flying crap about style distinctions of beverages. And it was probably opportunity. Yeah. You know, that, hey, that, that looks <laughs> like that's about to go run. Let's yeah, do something with it. Let's do it. Are we going to throw this out or are we going to? Drink it. <laughs> I know what I do. All right. Well, hey, thanks again, Dave. My pleasure. And hey, everybody, make wine. It's good for you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this second part of our exploration of home winemaking with Dave Lustig of Old Oak Cellars. Uh, remember, like we said, it's just about wine season. That's the reason why we're having this episode now. So go find your grapes. Go make like Lucy. Stomp, stomp some stuff in some tons. Squeeze out that juice and just get whiny. It's fun. Now, remember, also, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and on just about every homebrewing forum known to mankind. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is is Axel's Angels and Desi Strong Foundation supporting the fight against pediatric cancer. So until next time, remember, the brew is out there. <laughs>